The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab number 423, post-storm edition, <laughs> for Sunday, November 4th, 2012. Good readings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, the show where you send in your questions, we provide some answers, you send in your tips. We provide some tips of our own. Together, we like to share something we call cool stuff found. And we all come here to learn at least a little something new each and every time we get together here in Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. And here, assuming that you didn't take a little little nap before the show started. <laughs> here in Fearful, Connecticut, uh, emerging from the chaos, uh, John F. Braun. That's right. And uh, I would like to say hi to everybody, of course, that's uh, joining us in the chat room tonight. We have a full chat room, which is really nice to see on uh, a Sunday evening really? here. How, how can it ever really be full, though, Dave? Well, it's it's not. <laughs> that's right. It's it's, uh, it's virtually well, it's it's infinite. <laughs> it's well populated is what I would yes. like to say. Yes, it is. Yeah. Oh, Matt, 26, 25, uh, 25. That is. I, I think that may be a record. It might be. Yeah. MacGeekab.com slash stream is uh, is where you would do that. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter or Facebook if you want to join us there. But of course, you don't have to. Uh, you can get everything you would like out of the show right here listening just as you are. However, you are. And uh, and yes, both John, uh, John more than I um, uh, survived the uh, or endured. I should say we both survived uh, equally well. But uh, but John endured more of the effects of this particular storm than I did. Uh, I lost power for about 20 hours. And, John, you lost it for six days, if my math is right. Yes, it started um, Monday p.m. Mm -hmm. For most people, that's when our power went out and right. uh, came back, I would say, Sunday afternoon. Saturday afternoon. Oh, I'm you. sorry. Saturday. Yes. <laughs> I'll keep track of it for you, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, after a while, you just lose track of time, Dave. I trust <laughs> me. I know. Listen, and, and we'll talk. We're going to we're going to do a, a segment toward the end of the show about how we prepared ahead of time. And then, of course, how uh, we both endured the, the various power outages that we had. But, you know, for us, John, it was really, really weird because here as as longtime listeners of the show or even, you know, not that longtime listeners will know. When we lose power here, it is many, many days. Oftentimes, you know, we've had it for more than a week where it goes out. And we're not in the middle of nowhere here. It's just that we're in New Hampshire. We're yes, all, you are. All the lines are above ground. No, <laughs> yes, we're really you are. Not. We're what do you really you're not, not in the middle of nowhere. Relatively speaking, well, no, you, you are. You're certainly less densely populated than I am, I would say. Oh, At least yeah. My, well, my neck of the woods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, you go. No, you're, you're near a you're, you're well, like me, you, you're in a college town. So, yeah, mm. it's not, you know, totally off no, the map. No, and we're, what, you know, 10 minutes from Portsmouth and whatever. But anyway, in New Hampshire, the power just goes out for a really long time um, because all the lines are above ground. So uh, and I think they keep it that way because then they get all the FEMA funds to uh, repair the lines when they go down, as opposed to if they wanted to bury them now, then they'd have to do that out of their own budget. Um, so anyway, but that's my, that's my tinfoil hat conspiracy theory about what the power companies do. Awesome. Anyway, yeah. But anyway, the, we, um, you know, when the power goes out, so we had one night, we had Monday night where it was out and it, then it was back on, you know, Tuesday afternoon. So there was Tuesday night and we were all in this really weird funk. It was like, we didn't know what to do. We had all clearly gone through some level of mental preparation 
uh, for being out for many days. It was like Tuesday night. We're like, well, yeah, I guess we just cooked dinner. You know, we were really thrown off our game. But anyway, it was we were not unhappy. It was just odd. But uh, let's, uh, you know, as I was prepping the show this week, of course, I had to do uh, the lion's share of the show prep prep simply because John was off the the grid. Yeah, sure. And uh, and I realized we could do something that uh, that would be a good thing for us to do. And that is I picked topics now. Now, in a general sense, this won't be true, but, but certainly for the specifics, I I. I pick topics that I don't believe we have ever covered uh, in the, in the 422 shows prior. So this is should in theory be all new ground. Now we may <laughs> venture into uh, revisited ground, but, uh, but the goal and, and at least the agenda has us on, uh, on all new ground. So it should be mostly new ground. And with that, let's go to Dave who says, my question pertains to the MacBook pro 15 inch retina in clamshell mode. I have a 27-inch uh, uh, Thunderbolt monitor to which it is connected. How does this affect the battery life and performance? Keep in mind, I rarely disconnect it, and I do put it to sleep as much as possible because I'm unable to boot up in the clamshell mode. Thanks, and I look forward to your response. Yeah, so clamshell mode, for those of you that uh, either don't know or haven't figured it out, is when you have an external monitor, external keyboard, external mouse connected to a Mac laptop, and the laptop operates closed, simply acting like a Mac mini uh, or, you know, a, 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 even a Mac Pro in the sense that it is just the uh, guts sort of driving all of these external devices. And, and Apple so the has, only difference is, as far as I could tell, is you are not using your built in display. But other than that, the, the, the machine is operating, as you said, kind of like a Mac mini or a headless Mac. It's if, yeah. If you will. You're right. Exactly. Well, but it is, it's not headless because you're, you've plugged a monitor in, right? But, but yeah, it's running. It, yes. Or headless. When I say headless, I mean that you're not using the built-in display or you're right. using a, a, a external or third-party display mm-hmm. rather than the built-in display. But other than that, yeah, it should be identical. And, and it is okay to do um, all Mac laptops uh, are built to run in clamshell mode. So in terms of heat dissipation and all of that stuff, um, you know, it is going to run a little hotter because it's, you know, that's how it is, but it is built to dissipate enough heat. And, uh, and so you should be okay in, in that regard. Um, and it really shouldn't it clamshell mode all by itself. Shouldn't have any notable impact on the life of your battery. However, because you are running in clamshell mode by definition, you are most likely tethered to a desk because you've got this other monitor and, and potentially a wired keyboard and mouse, though they could be wireless. But the monitor, as you said, is wired via Thunderbolt. So chances are you also have it plugged into power. And if you run your Mac laptop plugged into power all of the time or even most of the time, the the long the longevity of your battery will be greatly diminished. Um, so you want to remember to unplug it regularly Um and and run it through, uh, you know, really the, the idea behind the battery, if you can keep a one one concept in mind, it is keep the electrons flowing either into the battery or out of the battery. But don't leave them in stasis, meaning sitting at 100 percent all the time with the power plugged in. So if you can do that, that's great. Um, one of our, our, our friends, Jeff Lynch, uh, developed Fruit Juice, uh, which is a, an app for helping you m- maintain and monitor your battery fruitjuiceapp.com would be a good place to uh, to visit. If you know that you're going to leave your Mac plugged in all the time, it will remind you about various things that are 
that are valuable to you. So any other thoughts? On nice. That? Yeah. Well, fruit juice. Well, he's got the juice. Obviously. He's got the juice. That's right. But we will link to. So I found an article. You may ask yourself, has Apple made any sort of official commentary on this? And yes, they have. And there's a knowledge base article, HT3131, just nice and symmetrical in a sense. Uh, Mac notebooks, how to use your computer in closed clamshell, paren display closed, closed paren mode with an external display. So. So Apple does, yeah, as, as you're saying here, it's, a, it's not, uh, they have a few caveats here mentioning uh, what you should expect when you're trying to do this sort of thing. Yep. All right. So there's clamshell mode. Uh, and we started with Dave. And so we will go to David and he asks something that, yes, is certainly something we talk about a lot, but we haven't ever actually answered this particular question. He says, I am looking for some help and feedback on how to use Onyx. I hear you guys mention it all the time, but I'm not quite sure what I should be running and how I should be doing it. I've been using Mac since Tiger was released, and I'm pretty familiar with the OS. I currently have a late 2009 27-inch iMac with Mountain Lion. It's starting to get a little sluggish, and I decided to download Onyx to do some preventative maintenance and cleanup. I have downloaded and installed the latest version and now have some questions about how to configure it and what are the best settings. Do you recommend the use of Onyx for occasional maintenance? Yes, we do. Uh, what is the difference between the titanium products, Onyx and maintenance? We'll talk about that. Uh, do they do different things or is maintenance a subset product of Onyx? Should I run Onyx with the default settings? How should I do it? And should I use automatic mode? So, yeah, near as I can tell, maintenance is a subset of Onyx and there's no reason not to download Onyx uh, because they're both the same price, which is free. Um as far as running Onyx, I do it with the automation section and the defaults there are fine, but I do add three things to the defaults when I'm running Onyx um, by default. Uh, so I, the three that I add, and then we'll talk about what, what all are on, but the three I'm adding are execute maintenance scripts, rebuild spotlight index and rebuild mail index, which means that the following things are, are not on uh, you're not rebuilding the display of folders content. You're not erasing the web browser cache and history, and you're not automatically removing saved versions of the documents. These are things that I think you might actually want to have long-term. There's certainly things I want to have long-term. So, uh, so I don't have Onyx erase those, but everything else I do. Uh, my guess is the reason that they do not include the maintenance scripts and the mail index and the spotlight index is because those things take a longer time to run than the rest of the stuff that, uh, that Onyx is going to do. So, but that's what I do. I go to the automation tab. I make sure the options are set that way. I click execute. It runs. And then when it finishes, it says it wants to reboot. So I quit all my apps first because I know I'm going to reboot at the end anyway. Mm. And that's how I run Onyx. And hopefully that helps somebody else out there too. It's good stuff, right? Cool. That's not typically how I run it, though. I, I would say that. Well, I would say that when I go into Onyx, I typically go in there for a. Uh, it's usually because something's wrong. <laughs> okay. So I typically don't go in there uh, just to go in there and run Onyx. Though so it is a nice app, and you know it looks nice, <laughs> visually pleasing. But uh, typically, I'll go in there, Dave, when something starts to go wrong, and typically I will go into the. Uh, which is right near the automation section, but typically I'll go and, and part of what it runs, but the cleaning section, uh, I would say is, uh, is almost always where I go when I do go in Onyx because there's something wrong. And I figure 
you know what? There's some cash or some, uh, for the most part, cash or, or something else there that I figure, you know what? It couldn't hurt if the system rebuilds this because something's going wrong. And uh, so that's my typical usage. But um, yeah. And as you point out, it does touch on things that should happen on a normal basis. Like, you know, the, especially the, uh, you know, Unix uh, cleanup scripts, you know, there's daily, weekly, and monthly. Right. Uh, you can certainly have it kick those off for you or tell you when they have run last. But uh, just let it toss it in. That's, that's my latest. But, uh, it, you know, I, I got to say, Dave, for the most part, the problems that you and I have seen, I, I would say, at least for me, dirty caches. Yeah. Or a cache being something that's stored from an earlier point in time and is there uh, to to hopefully speed things up. And as long as the data that you're retrieving hasn't been updated, that's exactly what a cache is supposed to do. It's supposed to store data and make it quicker to retrieve than having to do it again from the internets. That's right. And uh, for the most part, again, that that's what I found. Uh, it usually helps is that for whatever reason, the cache hasn't got deleted or it's in a confused state or it's corrupt and, and things go haywire that, that, that's, that's my typical use case. Yeah. So, cool. All right, moving on to Francis. He says, uh, I was having a problem with Safari the other day. And uh, what was happening was I got a notification that said Safari can't, I, I can't verify the identity of the website and then gave him uh, the name of a website. And he says, what does this mean? And it, in the web and the message goes on to say the certificate for this website is invalid. You might be connecting to a website that's pretending to be what you think you're connecting to. Why is this happening? And the uh, and he says, and then and then we got another email from Francis before we got a chance to get back. And he says, now the problem's gone. It's not happening anymore. So when you connect to a, a secure website, the website issues a certificate to you and then you encrypt data with that and send it back to the to the to the website. Even if you get a notification that says this certificate can't be verified. The data that you're sending to the website is still being encrypted. The issue is you're encrypting it with a certificate that may or may not have been compromised. And really what's happening is it's saying, look, we don't have a Safari is telling you Safari comes with a bunch of default certificates and then you can sort of um, build on those. At, which means that, you know, like for us, if you want to get a premium subscription, you know, you're going to enter some some data that may be uh, interesting to nefarious folks. And so we have a secure certificate there and we send you our certificate. But ours is built on a series of certificates that go back to one that Safari has built into it. And that way, Safari knows, yeah, I can follow the chain of this through to something I know to be trusted and therefore, I'm going to I'm going to trust this and you don't get a warning when you come to our site. But if we had generated our certificate ourselves, you would get a warning saying, hey, look, these guys may or may not be who they say they are. Uh, you get to decide whether or not you want to trust them. But if you do decide to trust them, we're going to go ahead and encrypt your data with this. So it's not like the data is not being encrypted. It's just that Safari can't necessarily trust the person and has to rely on you to decide whether or not you want to trust uh, this website. And, and you can get this message even with sites that have valid certificates. If something in the chain 
is just not working right at that point in time. Maybe a server's down or something uh, that, that doesn't let the validation happen, which is probably what happened with Francis because it then just started working again several days later. So, so that's what's going on with these certificates, but it's always going to be encrypted. You just don't know who has access to the, uh, the keys to unlock the encryption. If Safari uh, gives you that warning message is that, uh, I know I, I I translated that into into human language, John. Did I did I miss anything there? Uh, I could understand it. Okay. <laughs> well, that that's that's what, one. Uh, what I'll say though. So so yeah. So to, so to crystallize what you said, I mean, what happens is when you go to a secure website, uh, what ha- what happens basically is that, as you stated, uh, but but to you know focus on this is that the certificates that be that is being presented to you by a website is checked against a list of known good certificate issuers, which is stored on your Mac. And that is built into the OS and installed when you install the OS. Uh, and it may get updated from time to time when, when these guys come up with new certificates. Though, you know, Dave, this is interesting because I've seen this happen before and the specific error message actually says, so the first thing it says is, oh, well, you know, let me tell you about the person that I don't trust here. And in this one, it's GTE Cybertrust Global Root, which GD has been doing, you know, internet stuff for years. Sure. So you certainly trust them. But where I think the problem here is, is what, where actually the certificate ran into a problem was that it, it was a, and this is very timely, and maybe this is why you put it together this way. Um, I think this is a caching issue of sorts because it hmm. says, oh, well, I don't like this certificate. It belongs to Akamai.net. Now, Akamai, if you folks don't know, is a... And I'm sure you've dealt with them, Dave, or, sure. or have had to. Now, they should be transparent, but Akamai, I think what, what they do is they are a company that will help distribute your content or cash uh, or cash your content so that people can retrieve it quicker. Well, it, they're, they're a lot like, uh, we, you know, we use a service called Cashfly, right? Right. Um, and and, and they do the same thing, I think. Very they, similar they to Onyx. Our right, content sorry. get to people quicker, right? Yeah, it, it it stores copies. In our case, what what happens is we upload the the MP3 or the AAC for the show and to Cashfly to one place, and then it they have servers all over the world, and they go and put the same copy of that uh, data file out on all of their servers. So when you go to connect, it says, "Wait, where are you?" And it directs you to the server closest to you and then beams you the file. And and Akamai does exactly the same thing. So, yeah. So but, you know, in theory, every one of their edge servers has the same version of the file. But it's possible that something could get out of whack when you get lots and lots of edge servers happening out there. And that, that right. Yep. So in this case, I think what happened is whatever cached the certificate portion of the communication got um. I don't know how we can put this technically munged. Yeah, there you go. I'll go with <laughs> and that. So, and so that's why you. Uh, so although everything else worked, uh, apparently, yeah, whatever version of the certificate that they had cached was old or corrupted or something. And that's why you got this error, though. Everything else seemed to work just fine, which. Yeah, which is good. <laughs> that's good. Right, right, right. Oh, that's good. That's good. Uh, you know, I want to. Uh, I want to, before we move on to Robert's question, I want to talk about our first sponsor for this show, which is smile software. And they are the makers of lots of great apps, including PDF pen and PDF pen pro PDF pen uh, is a fantastic utility for modifying, creating and, 
and simply using PDFs. PDFs have become such a huge part of our computing and, and data sharing environment. I mean, we see contracts using PDFs. We see information, you know, you're getting documentation from, you know, I have documentation files for my dishwasher and PDF, and it's actually pretty awesome because I can store them all in a folder on my computer and I don't have to dig through a big box of stupid manuals when I need to find my dishwasher. But, you know, sometimes there's stuff you want to do with a PDF. And uh, if it's a contract, you might want to put your signature on it, right? Well, PDF pen lets you edit the PDF and actually place an image or even draw your signature right there on the, uh, on the PDF. You can also place text from uh, that you type in and, and position that all over it. Um, almost treating your PDF like the background to a page layout document. And of course, if it's your dishwasher, you might remember, so you might say, Hey, this is the thing we fixed on, uh, you know, I, I used this section of the manual in January of 2012 to fix that thing with the, with the, you know, the food grinder. And so you might want to put a little note in there that you did that. Well, PDF pen lets you do that too. You totally can, can customize stuff. You can remove pages. You can add pages. You can even edit the text that's in a PDF by highlighting it. And they've got a little text edit button that lets you totally go in there and change what's on a PDF. So now we're not even using it as a background for what we're drawing on it, but we're actually changing the page and uh, really, really cool stuff. If you get PDF pen pro, if you need to create PDFs that have, you know, those cool forms that you need to fill, you know, sometimes you fill, go to fill out a form and in, in uh, you know, if the PDF opens in your browser or in preview or whatever, and you've got little forms that you can type into, you can create those forms with PDF pen pro. So if you have a need to do that, go check that out, go check it out though. Smilesoftware.com and you can download PDF pen or PDF pen pro for your Mac there. Of course, they also, as you may have heard, have PDF pen for the iPad and the iPhone now allowing you to do all the same things that we're talking about here on your Mac. So check it out. This is one of those pieces of software that's easy for me to talk about. I really love having smile as a sponsor because I use this almost every day uh, when I'm at my desk. There's just because PDFs are such a huge part of what we do. It's, you know, I, I, if I don't have PDF pen on my Mac, it becomes painfully obvious to me very, very quickly. And I have to remedy it right away. So, uh, so you go remedy it right away too. go to smilesoftware.com. You can download a 30 day trial and, uh, and check it out. And then, and then when you're ready to roll, you, uh, well, you go buy it. PDF pen pro is 99 95. That, that gives you the extra creation features. PDF pen is 59 95, but go check out the free trial first. Make sure, uh, make sure you know why you're going to go spend that, that 60 or a hundred bucks and, uh, and then go do it. Smilesoftware.com. I heard you, I heard you, uh, did you have something to, to say about PDF pen while we were, while I was doing that, John, or were you just getting ready for the next question? I was just raring to go. <laughs> raring to go is good. Robert asks, uh, I love the idea of Apple's new fusion drive, which uses software in mountain lion to administer data between SSD and spindle drives. It seems to be baked into the operating system, not into the drives. And since I already have both of these kinds of drives running on my Mac, I wonder if I can use Mountain Lion's Fusion software's controls without having to buy the Apple Fusion drive. The answer actually came to us from Michael Johnston, who is the one that uh, that converts this show to AAC and adds all the chapters and all of that stuff. After hearing the last show where we talked about this, he found the solution and someone has figured out how to use core storage to uh 
to, to create a fusion drive and, and they posted a, 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 all the instructions up there. So yes, it is totally doable. However, I have to, I have to mention that if you're going to do this with your boot drive, you need to assume that if there are any problems that you would need to fix with, you know, a recovery partition or with, you know, a, a DVD or whatever, you know, some external boot drive, assume that because this is an unsupported configuration of fusion drive and you're really you're not even tricking the OS into creating what it calls a fusion drive for you. You are talking directly to core storage and just telling it, create this thing. And I'm sure it's the same as what Apple's doing, but I don't expect Apple's utilities to say, Hey, you've got a fusion drive. I know just what to do. My guess is it's going to be, yeah, you've got something going on there, dude. And I'm assuming since you created it, you know how to fix it. So make sure you have really good backups because I don't expect any of the utilities that Apple presents us with to be able to, or to be forthcoming with fixes for, uh, for this. So if you're comfortable with that, then yeah. Uh, you know, we'll put the link. I put the link in the chat room for everybody listening on the stream. And of course we'll put it in the show notes for, uh, for those of you listening at home or in your cars or, or wherever it is you would, you would choose to listen, listen. So uh, on the one hand, Dave, I like the hacky goodness of, course. of being able to do this on the other hand. <laughs> as you were suggesting i think oh gosh make a backup of everything if you do this because you're <sighs> you're on very thin ice here by by trying to trick apple's os into doing what it, it normally doesn't want to do to but be, you're trying to trick it to be fair though it, it like i said it's not like you're going and, and changing some p list that makes the mac think oh hey i can create a fusion drive here all of this functionality is built into core storage. You are creating yeah. an, an LVM volume using the logical volume manager. And so all sure. of, it's you're, it's hacky in that you're sort of creating it on your own, but you're not tricking the OS into doing anything it wouldn't normally do. You could have done this three months ago. It, it, nothing sure. has changed. Right. So it, and people probably have been doing this for for a while. So it's you're not. It's not like you're tricking like like uh, in the sense that we used to be able to say, oh, yeah, we're going to trick, you know, your older Mac to let it run Mountain Lion. Right. That's one sort of that's like real trickery where you're, you know, well, leading you know, and that old. one and that one is a different thing. that It's putting a block in place because mm. it doesn't feel that certain parts of your system have the performance necessary for a pleasant user experience. So they right. say, all right, if you're below this threshold, as far as uh, horsepower of your hardware, yep. I'm not going to install. Right. Of course, if you want to change this internal check, and I think basically the strategy is you monkey with or delete a plist file that it checks for this sort of thing, then it'll just happily march ahead right. and you'll suffer the consequences. Right. <laughs> Whatever they'll be, which probably will be, yeah, the system will be sluggish in certain places. And, right. Oh, well. You know, if it's that versus not being able to run the OS that you so desperately want to run, then okay, yeah, <laughs> maybe be able to deal with it. Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, so it's it's all there. It just just as it would have been if you did this three months ago. Don't expect Apple to support it um, just because now newer machines have this thing that they call Fusion Drive, which is very similar to the end result of what you're creating on your own. You know, so. So off you go. It is supported in the OS. My guess is, like especially with Fusion Drive there, 
it will be supported in future versions of the OS. I, so it's, it's safe to do in that. I don't think the functionality is going to go away, but don't expect Apple's utilities to treat you as, as uh, to coddle you as they do when you're doing stuff that's sort of in their in their box. My guess is though, that we will see fusion drives uh, available or fusion drive rather available for older Macs probably in like six months. Right. When, when this becomes like a normal thing and then it'll just be one of those things. It's like, yeah, go ahead and create one. It's fine. Well, I, I think it'll stuff. be similar to trim. And right now you yeah. can certainly hack the OS to support trim on non. I think officially now the position is still, all right, we'll support trim, which is a mechanism to get better write efficiency. Right. Uh, if you want to boil it down out of an SSD. But right now, as far as I know, Dave, unless they change something in Mountain Lion, yeah. it will only work on Apple branded uh, SSDs. You can certainly monkey with the OS and say, oh, by the way, you know, uh, ignore that and yeah. <laughs> just implement it on the drive I have now, which I'm going to I'm going to tell you it's OK to do this and please do it. And, and I've done it. I've done the hack. I, I think it actually plays with a, uh, a kernel extension file and eliminates a check saying, oh, by the way, are you an Apple SSD? Yeah. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's go to Andrew here. This is, uh, well, this is, this is one that Andrew actually solved on his own uh, with, with some help from the manufacturer, but it's a really good thing. There's a lesson here. So bear with us. And g'day, John. G'day, Dave. It's Andrew here on Australia's Gold Coast. I've got a problem connecting a external USB drive to my time capsule. So I've got the latest version of time capsule, and I want to plug in my GTEC um, mini uh, drive into the back of that. But uh, it doesn't show up when I plug it in. It doesn't show up as a drive in the um, airport utility, uh, nor does it show up as a shared drive in Finder. Now, I, uh, it's you know formatted in Apple Extend or Extended Journaled. I've also plugged in a um, you know little USB thumb drive, and it shows up as a disk drive as well as in the airport utility. But no matter what I do, uh, this um, USB or sorry, uh, GTEC Mini USB drive just won't show up uh, on the airport utility or uh, on my computer via USB uh, into the back of the time capsule. It works fine going straight into my MacBook. Anyway, so I wrote to uh, uh, GTEC or Hitachi and said, you know, dude, what's doing? And uh, they wrote back and said, oh, we don't know. We can't work it out. There's some compatibility issue. And here's a reference to an Apple forum. Go and work it out for yourself. So uh, they immediately got a fist shake from me. So anyway, I've read what they've suggested. It is absolutely gobbledygook to me. I forwarded it to you guys as well. Help, um, can you uh, have a look at this for me and uh, offer any advice? And um, if you do find something, don't get caught. See ya. Bye. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. All right. Uh, so we went round and round about a couple of things and you know, the drive should work if it's, if it's formatted, right. It, it need it does need to be formatted correctly. It needs to be HFS plus, and it needs to be, I believe uh GUID partition table, but, um, but none of that mattered for him. He wound up getting another tech on and, uh, and talked through them. And interestingly, um, his Mac would, this is a USB drive. Um, and a firewire drive his mac would power it just fine over firewire but remember the time capsule is usb 
And he had asked the first tech about this who said it didn't matter. But it turns out the issue is that the time capsule does not have enough juice to, to bus power this drive over USB. Um, he hooked up a, you know, a 12 volt power adapter to it uh, to, to provide the drive its own power separate from the bus and everything worked out fine. So the lesson here, which I really didn't uh, didn't know is that the, you know, the time capsule does not provide enough power, at least for some drives. I'm sure there are some drives that it will power just fine, but don't expect it to be able to power everything. Um, and, and, you know, a corollary to that is that USB and firewire are, are very different. Firewire is really built to provide more power over the bus, more consistent power over the bus than, than USB, um, ever was at least for, for hard drives, especially. So, so that's my story, John. And I suppose and thank you're you, sticking to it. I'm stuck to it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm committed now. That's right. <laughs> You know, that is a very interesting, I would say, oversight, because yeah. as far as I know, Dave, although on the Mac, you can certainly run uh, system info or system profile or whatever they call it this week. Um, it will tell you, uh, among the other things that will tell you in the hardware section, specifically in the USB section, one of the parameters that, that uh, is used to describe the behavior of a USB port is, oh, by the way, here's how much current which boils down to power because, of course, power is current times voltage. But it, it typically advertises the current that is available on that port. And normally the OS itself will yell at you if you try to plug something in that wants more. Mm. That's so, right. So there's two parts of it is that yeah. the device itself has a built in. And I think it's typically for most normal USB ports, 500 milliamps is normally the amount of current that it can support uh, on its own without being externally powered. Anything more than that, and many of you may have seen this, I, I still see this sometimes, especially if you try to plug into like one of Apple's older keyboards, which has kind of a wimpy hub in it as far as power requirements. Is This is when, I, when I've almost always seen this message. When I do see it is when I plug something in the keyboard hub from an Apple keyboard, really like, ah, da, da, I can't, can't uh, I don't have enough power for this. Um, yeah. You know, please unplug this because I, I can't talk to it. So, but it's interesting because apparently, it, well, it kind of makes sense. There's no mechanism for the device itself to tell you of this. Sure. It may want to. And I wonder if it is somehow trying to desperately, you know, if, there, if there's a log or something or a blinking light or something. No, I guess not. No, I guess it just yeah. doesn't work. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I would say as a general rule of thumb, don't rely on bus power for any drives that you are connecting to a time capsule or, you know, airport extreme. I, I would, I would, you know, make sure they have their own wall wart outlets that, you know, <laughs> well, really, I mean, you know, get them their own power. Do not rely. Well, I like, I like your use of uh, that terminology. I don't think I've heard you say that in a while. What's wall that? Wart. Oh yeah. yeah wall yeah. wart. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but uh but yeah they they you know it because simply because it may work right out of the gate but as you pointed out john the there is no way for you to get an error message from the time capsule that says hey i can't provide enough power this is asking for more power than i want to give it and so assume that it will happen at some point and get yourself a uh a power adapter which you know like like i said most likely ends up being a wall wart and chewing up you know, valuable outlet space. So, and that's the thing that I always liked about FireWire. FireWire, if nothing else, was built to give you the juice. Yeah, you know? mm -hmm. 
Well, for USB, for, typically, uh, I, I've never seen a situation where a FireWire port never did not provide enough power, but I've certainly seen it like this, where a USB port did not provide enough power for a single device. Yep. And uh, and uh, KiwiGram uh, in the chat room has suggested perhaps using a powered hub. And and that that's certainly one way to go, uh, connecting your time capsule or airport extreme to a hub that has its own power. And then you connect your devices to it. But even then you'll never get an error message if it's asking for more than the hub is even providing. So, and it may be that this particular drive model isn't built to be USB bus powered, right? It's built to be firewire bus powered, but that does not necessarily mean that it's built to be USB bus powered. So you've got to, you know, you got to sort of factor that into. All right. Uh, Ulysses writes, he says the latest mountain lion update has introduced a major flaw with wireless networks. When mountain lion goes to sleep, it disconnects me from the wireless network. Normally my MacBook pro uh, runs on the power adapter. It does not matter the power setting. Uh, it appears in mountain lion uh, shutdown and upon waking restores the wireless network and my network uh, shares, which is very annoying. I own a Synology NAS and with the latest update, resetting the router is required. So mountain lion can find the NAS device. Any help. So, uh, the interesting thing was this took a, a, an interesting turn. We had him go in and check the settings in the energy saver, enabling Wi-Fi wake from sleep, which I thought would keep the Wi-Fi circuitry active uh, even while the Mac was asleep, that didn't help. Uh, in the interim, he wound up calling Apple, Apple care and Apple care suggested two things. One was resetting the power management on the machine. And then the other was deleting all of the energy saver P list files in, in the system preferences uh, or in the home library preferences folder, I believe is where those are stored. And he said, one of those two things worked. Uh, but he did them both at the same time. So he doesn't know which it was. My guess is it was the SMC reset though, because this seems like a far more, um, you know, SMC is one of those things that fixes hardware problems that aren't quite hardware, but sort of hardware. And so that, that that's my guess on this one, but the, the P list files might also be it, but, uh, but an SMC reset hopefully is the solution when you have Wi-Fi that, won't stay working. Anything to add there, John? Really? <laughs> well, that's my, that's my theory. Oh, I'm with you, brother. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's that. that I, I, I was just thinking, you know, should we call it hardware or software? Well, that's, that's in my the world. Thing. There's an ongoing battle between the forces of good, which in my opinion are the forces of software and the forces of evil, which are the forces of hardware. And no, I, I've just <laughs> throughout my career have had yeah. battles because it's always fun to figure out. All right, who do we blame? Is it a bug in the software or a bug in the firmware or the hardware? Right. Which I I, I lump firmware into the hardware side, although technically I think firmware is software. software that tells the hardware what to do. Right. But it's married to the to the hardware. Well, and that's what we're talking about with the SMC, right? I mean, we're in that sort of murky middle ground there, so. Yeah, or it's settings that sometimes get corrupted or just need to be flushed because something's wrong. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Got it. All right. 
Uh, let's see. How are we doing on time here? Because we've got lots of stuff to go through. All right, we're actually doing okay. We're, we're moving. Really? All right. Okay. Larry. I could do a Jack Bauer and say we're running out of time. That's right. Uh, okay. Larry writes, he says, my bookkeeper has been merrily using mail on an iMac running Snow Leopard for some months without any problems. Then she started getting a dialogue the other day that says you can't use this version of mail with this version of Mac OS 10. It can't be used on this version of Mac OS 10. Try opening the version of mail located in the applications folder uh, on your computer. He says, being the obedient sort, I did what the OS told me and found that there were indeed multiple versions of the mail application installed on the machine as system profiler, or as you pointed out, whatever it's called now, indicates. He says, I tried all four and they all produced the same dialog box and they're all listed as the same version. So what might have happened to trigger this? The obvious thing that sticks out is I bought and installed a new printer, but I can't imagine that did it. Uh, I did uninstall the printer software, but mail still doesn't run. I tried it on another user account on the same machine and got the same results. What do you think is happening? Well, what I think is happening is that there's some library file out there that is confusing the OS into thinking that whatever version of mail is on there is not the one that it is expecting. The good news is uh, you're running 10.6.8 version of snow leopard. And uh, there is a combo updater out there. Mail was updated at some point along the path with snow leopard. And I think if you can reinstall mail on there, this problem will go away. And I think the combo updater will do that. I don't think you have to go and reinstall from the Snow Leopard DVD. So go download the combo updater, which uh, we'll put a link in the show notes for you. And uh, and it's going to be, you know, a little over a gigabyte. Run that on there. Hopefully that will put back in place whatever needs to happen. And then, yeah, get rid of all the other copies of mail. Just have the one in the applications folder. There's no reason. I can't think of a reason to have multiple copies of mail. The OS clearly doesn't want you to have them. Uh, it's not going to run older versions anyway. So uh, so get them out of there and then run this combo updater. And and we're going to keep our fingers crossed for you because I think that'll do it. What do you think, John? I think many things. Uh, it's good. <laughs> You're metacognitive. Not only do you think you like to think about thinking and I and I appreciate that about you. You didn't think I was going to so, pull that word out, did you? I, I never know what to expect, even after all these years. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> so, um, no, the only thing that occurs, yes, I, I would say that there is is a, a likelihood that, yes, there is corruption at some level in the file system. Because uh, uh, letting it allow you to install multiple versions of of a application, to me, means that it can't tell that it's already there. So is it a directory that's damaged? or uh, I don't know, but... You know, that shouldn't happen. Right. Uh, well, of course, many things that you <laughs> you ask us to help you with are things that shouldn't happen. Otherwise, right. you wouldn't call us. That's what we're here for. <laughs> yeah. And if you wanted to call us, well, we'll tell you in a moment. But first, I, I did want to take a little sideline here because there is a very, very nice tool that will help you do things like this. So typically, I would say the Apple installers do not give you the level of granularity that you may want if you just want to install a single application that you either forgot to install or gets corrupted, as in this case. The tool to do this, Dave, 
is something we've and, mentioned and before. So we, years. Are, we are now. Venturing. But I'm going to mention it again for That's the okay. for the for for the the young ones, the young ones. There you go, the young ones. Um, pacifist. What does this tool do for you? Well, it does many things, but the one thing that it does very well is that it allows you to peek into and actually access individual elements of Apple and other installers. Uh, more specifically, things that are in packages, um, I think, or, or you know, well, well-structured files that are meant to install a bunch of things, but don't necessarily give you the ability to pick which one or ones you would like to pick out of there. And Pacifist will let you peek into, uh, among other things, your OS installer. And so in theory, you could use something like Pacifist to pick out just the mail app and right. replace it. And then this goes for a lot of things. So if it's a, if it's an Apple app, uh, you know, like I said, typically Apple doesn't let you reinstall Safari or well, uh, Safari. Yes. But but other parts of the OS that, that come with it and are installed, it typically doesn't give you the ability to do anything beyond a full OS install. And you may not want to do that for various reasons. Yeah. So love pacifist been using it for years and it, and it also just gives you a just out of curiosity if you want to see gee what are all the pieces that make up os 10 well this will tell you because <laughs> you can see every single one of them using this tool cool that's charlessoft.com that's right all right uh let's see getting back to what is new or what is uncovered by us anyway uh he says uh, uh not he Robert, well, he, but we'll introduce him. Robert writes, uh, John, you have mentioned Little Snitch a few times, and I have recently downloaded it. Interesting network info is displayed. When I logged into Skype, however, I noticed 36 servers listed under Skype, most labeled only by IP address. And when clicking details in Little Snitch, it appears some are connected with Skype by name, but most are not. Many are certificate. Many are certificates are listed as valid and issued by Apple. Uh, some named uh, Facebook.com, which I do not use. Others were uh, gateway.messenger.live.com. I was prompted to deny or allow each server and denied several, but this quickly became tedious. And I eventually allowed many not knowing which ones are necessary for Skype and which are not. I follow a trust no one online philosophy and I am reluctant to use Skype. I hate to go through 36 plus pop-up boxes to check allow or deny every time. What say you guys? Well, um, I'll kind of, I'll kind of give my, my general overview of Skype here, John. And then I'm curious to hear what you run, <laughs> run into because you run little snitch, but Skype is interesting. It, uh, it connects to a lot of servers and that's just how Skype works. And it's why their network is so robust because other than when you log in and you you uh, validate your credentials with Skype, once you kind of get your you are authorized token, you're now connecting to lots of different Skype nodes. In fact, uh, it's possible. And I don't think the Mac version does this, but the Windows version you can run is what's called a super node. And you may not even know that you're running as this, but you, at, you know, on your home machine, you might be passing traffic through. It's all encrypted and, and all of that stuff. Um, using Skype special sauce, but it's what allows them to work very well at getting around, um, you know, firewalls and, and routing and all of that stuff. So it just simply works. Uh, but it does require it. It's what it's what I call a thick 
network client as opposed to a thin client. And, and I mean that in the network sense, as opposed to something like AOL instant messenger, right. Or, or iMessage even, which connects to a single centralized server and lets the server do all the work. Skype connects to lots of different nodes and the Skype application does all the work of pulling things together. And uh, like I said, it keeps it decentralized, which is very, very good for a lot of reasons, but it also means that it needs to open up lots of network connections. This is why the Skype app for iOS is such a battery hog because it too is a thick network client. It's connecting to the same 36 or more uh, servers out there and keeping all of these connections open simultaneously. So very, very uh, different setup than, like I said, an iMessage or an AOL instant messenger. So yes, this is, this is what you will deal with using Skype. It just how it is. Uh, if you want to use Skype in a quote unquote thin way, um, there is a service called IMO.IM and that's the, the web address that you would type in IMO.IM. They have a web client uh, that will allow you to connect to Skype and, and it is a thin client. You're making one connection to IMO and then they are doing the, the work of connecting to Skype. They also have an iOS app works great on the iPad or the iPhone way more efficient because again, it is a thin client. You're just talking straight, but it's only good uh, on iOS. Anyway, it's only good for text chats. It's not going to let you do audio or video like the uh, Skype app proper would. So that might be an option for you, especially if you don't want to have to mess with uh, with all of Skype's connections. So, John, how do you deal with all of Skype's connections and Little Snitch? Well, like you, Dave, I love Little Snitch. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. I, I would say I am a Little Snitch fan, and I would say that you probably are not. Yeah, okay. I, I'm not for exactly the reason that Robert talks about yes. where he said, yes, I, I just I get totally s- agree. I get sick of it and I click, click allow for everything. It's like, OK, well, now it's right. not doing you so, any good. So if there's any downside to a tool like Little Snitch and what is Little Snitch? And I'll tell you in a nutshell. Little Snitch is something that basically tells you what is trying to go out. So unlike a incoming firewall where you're, you're, you're protecting your computer against the evils that are in the outside world trying to get in, Little Snitch is giving you the opposite functionality. It's telling you things that look suspicious that are trying to get out of your computer and asking for approval. Now, sometimes the, the only thing, as Robert is pointing out accurately, is that for certain programs, this gets to be a pain in the neck just because of the way they implement TCP IP. And Skype is one of them where it has an expectation uh, once it's running, I have free reign over what ports I should uh, I want to use to communicate voice data. And so what happens is you will get repeated. And what I do in these cases, Dave, is I tell it at, at a certain point, it'll come up and say, yeah, Skype is asking to use port one, two, three, four, five. OK, Skype is asking to use port two, three, four, five, six. OK, you know what? Just let it use whatever port it wants, which now one could argue it, it defeats the purpose of a program like Little Sitch. But I don't think it does, because what I do, Dave, is for programs like this and another one, for example, where you get surprise ports and you never know what they are as FTP is another protocol Yep. Uh, in a lot of cases that does this is you never know the port that is going to be selected for using the, the return data channel. And so 
you could either sit there and acknowledge all of them and be very paranoid and say, yes, well, I acknowledge all of them. So I, I know what's going on or just say, you know what? Eh, just <laughs> just do what you want. Now, Little Snitch, in its defense, does offer varying levels of granularity. It'll sure. say, all right, this program on this port approve that this program to this port on this server. Okay. Approve that. So there's different levels, but at some point, yeah, you, you do have to throw in the towel just because of the way things like Skype work. And it's part of what makes Skype really good or reliable right. is that it is doing this multi-port. Uh, as you said, Dave, I, I haven't looked into the details of how they implement this, but Supernode, I guess you said is, is uh, one concept they have Yeah, where you're kind of a focal point in the Skype network. For, for traffic, or I guess you're, you're both uh, receiving and transmitting perhaps other people's traffic, right? Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Or at the very least, um, if you're not transferring their traffic, you're working to get everyone connected, y- you know, like I right, said, or, the, pro- or pro- provide, yeah, yeah uh, uh, routing or whatever it is. Yeah. Route, yeah, sure. Yeah. It's it. I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again because it's, it's relevant and I'll break our role. Um, which we've already broken, but uh, <laughs> I have a uh, uh, someone close to me who works for a very large, uh, you know, fortune, whatever s- s- low digit company. And we, we chat on Skype a lot, uh, text, but also audio and video. And uh, this person happened to be in the boardroom of this particular company one day and uh, typed to me and, and said, answer, but don't say anything fine so skype rings i answer i hear some voices in the background and i get a thing on there and says uh you know a text chat saying can you hear and can you see me and i said yeah and uh and then you know we hung up and and uh text chat comes in okay yeah i could see you too uh i'm in the boardroom in theory, our firewalls here at the company are so locked down that nothing should be able to get in and out of this, especially not streaming <laughs> audio and video. But but that's what Skype does is it route. It doesn't do it to be malicious. It does it to make your life easier, you know, so that when you have a, a friend, you know, or I mean, let's say you've got, uh, you know, your, your family member who's deployed in Afghanistan and, and you just call. And Skype figures out how to make the call work so that you can see and hear each other. It's just what it does. And and so it it sure enough routed around this uh, just supposedly very, very locked down corporate firewall. But it was fine. No, uh, no company secrets were leaked and uh, and no one got uh, in the process. Well, so. somebody got fired or yelled at. No, I'm sure. No, I don't think anybody even knew. Really? Yeah. No, I'm no. just wondering if somebody. Oh, our, our system's totally secure. Nobody can get it. Right. <laughs> Right. Yeah, yeah. Excuse me. Yeah. Joe. Uh, yeah. Hold on here. Can, can, no, it was it was never talked to Dave. <laughs> yeah. It was never brought to anyone's attention that this uh, this was right, right, right. doable because, you know, it, it's nice to it's nice to know. But so, yes. Yeah. So. So to wrap it up, uh, little snitch is not the best tool for every program. In, in fact, some programs it will get annoying, in which case. I just punt and I say, you know what? Let this program do whatever it wants. Uh, right. and, and you typically said a. Uh, forever rule for any port that a certain program wants to use. Now, some may argue, well, that's not very secure. Well, I would say, you know, you got to balance, uh, you know, wanting to punch little snitch in the face and <laughs> and use it, being able to use your computer. Yeah. Uh, so that's what I do because it does get it. It can certainly get in the way. But um, 
I still Andy. like what it tells me, Dave. I know. I, 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 w- I would say the only the, the thing that I like best about it is especially when Apple updates the operating system and it will. And this is the part that tickles me about Little Snitch and why I still like using it is that you get an idea of what Apple added to the OS at a low level, because a lot of times once you've done a point upgrade and they've added a new feature, Little Snitch will come up and say something like, Blah, 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 D wants to contact Apple.com. You want to let it? And I'm like, oh, well, that's an interesting new process. I haven't heard of that. Gee, I wonder where that came from. Oh, of course, it came from the last OS update. Sure. So it can certainly give you an understanding of what's happening at, at, at the, a lower network level uh, in the OS uh, if you're nosy. But sometimes you just got to tell it to get out of the way. Yeah, that's right. That's right. All right. Uh, one last question. Uh, Sean writes. And I will I will read his email verbatim. Okay, you knuckleheads. As I write, I can only open a few applications. The rest bounce for a split second and then disappear. But that's not where the story begins. I've been working on a rather mundane job for the last few weeks, and I decided that in order to alleviate the boredom, I would download a few podcasts to pass the time. And this is where I ran into your show. I have an early 2011 MacBook Pro, eight gigs of RAM, Mountain Lion, and so on and so forth. I have owned it for a little over a year. I'm a power windows user, but I'm slowly becoming an OS 10 convert. I tinker. I dabble. I ignore my wife for hours on end playing with everything from network storage to audio and film editing. Your show has not only helped me to pass the time, but has pointed me in the right direction of all the applications, scripts, and so on, which better my life. And then this happened. Download secrets said you. Okay. I said, I'd never heard of it. And so I did. And I played for a while. I tinkered with the settings. If memory served correctly, I turned on all the quartz related settings and for some unknown reason, tinkered with the 64 bit kernel, figuring everything was already 64 bit. So what harm could it do? At the same time, I decided it was a good time to streamline my system. I ran monolingual and removed all the necessary language files and architectures. Then it happened. Everything locked up, and upon reboot, I was met with a gray screen of death. I could not get to the login screen. I tried safe boot. I tried command R and fixed permissions. I tried verbose and undid the commands at the terminal the best I could. Nada. Having listened to a handful of your shows, I cursed myself for not having multiple backups of everything. My life was on the MacBook Pro, not backed up at all. I downloaded and reinstalled Mountain Lion, and thankfully it reinstalled, keeping my data intact which is an amazing feature that should be made clear to Windows users. Finally, I was back in OS X. I went to open iPhoto, and it closed without opening. I tried to open the Microsoft suite. Same thing. In fact, everything closed immediately except Safari, Finder, and a few other choice apps. Thinking that this could be a permissions issue, I repaired everything in sight. I also ran Disk Warrior. Same problems. After reinstalling all of my most major apps... I am now back to a nearly normal operating environment and backing up everything as we speak. But the geek in me wants to know why this happened and what might fix it. I still have a few apps that I have not reinstalled for testing purposes. So my questions are, what did I do to break my Mac in the first place? That's number one. Number two, how can one fix the issue issue of system-wide non-opening apps when they have used all the obvious features such as disk utility? And number three, as a Windows user, after such a fatal crash and recovery... I cannot help but think that some kind of nuke and pave is required to get things running at optimal speed. Should I persevere with getting everything working or backup via time machine and start again? Okay. Uh, so I want to answer these in a couple orders. <laughs> well, I'll answer them actually in, in order because this is an interesting thing. Um, his first question, what did I do to make, to break my Mac in the first place? 
I think the booting issue was the 64 bit kernel and monkeying with that, but I'm placing my bets on monolingual for being the biggest uh, factor in all of the problems that you have now monolingual for those of you that don't know. Yes. Right. It monolingual is an app and it's a great idea. Uh, It will go through (laughs) and pull out, you know, when you install your operating system, it installs language files for lots of other, lots of other languages. Well, if you don't use those languages, they're simply taking up space. So it was built to go in and remove those language files. And that actually is relatively fine and relatively safe even. But what it also will do, and I'm I'm assuming that Sean did, is it will go in and it will um, erase all of the language files inside all of your applications, too. And this is where it can get dangerous. And I'm guessing that this is what made all of your apps not work. Now, what's interesting is moving on to step two, you know, how can I fix the issue? Well, you you reinstalled the operating system and you said that most apps iPhoto, Word, Adobe apps still wouldn't open, but some apps would. And the some apps that would were Safari, Finder, I'm guessing Mail, all of the apps that would have come with the OS. Now those apps are back up to what I'm going to call full bloat size. They have all their language files. They have everything. I'm guessing Monolingual pulled more out of there than, uh, than those apps could take. And so by reinstalling the apps... Uh, first with the OS and then individually with the apps afterwards. And iPhoto, even though it's an Apple app, does not get installed with the OS. You have to install it separately. As, you, as you're doing that, you're kind of rebuilding these apps and putting all the stuff back that you had stripped out with monolingual. And I think that's, that's the solution. And, uh, and so, you know, to, to question number three, should I punt and, and, and reboot? No, I don't think you have to. I think you have... I, I think you're on to the, the repair path. So just, you know, if an app won't run, just reinstall it because it's probably just missing some, some required libraries. But, uh, but yeah, monolingual, I think was the, I've always wanted to run monolingual on my system. I never have because it scares me too much that something like this would happen. So what do you think, John? I'm frightened as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's scary, man. <laughs> All right. No, no, no. Well, Issue number one, knuckleheads. Come on. <laughs> I think that was a, that was a term of endearment, John. All right. Well, all right. Sean's my favorite knucklehead too. Then. Okay. There you go. <laughs> there you go. But yeah, digging into the app. So actually, and you can see some of this with almost any app. If you uh, open, if you say open package and you dig around an app, you will see what I'll call localized information, which is at some point you can see it's saying, okay, this is for English. This is for this language. This is for that language. And it's a great feature when you want to customize your apps for different markets, but it's too close. I think to the app itself in that mucking about with that. So I I think you and I for, for once here, Dave, I think agree that something like this in theory is a swell idea because you should be able just as if you looked at a package, you should be able to tell what language resources are probably that's the thing probably not necessary for the for the program to function in your uh, language of choice. But it gets co- close to other resources that it may accidentally wallop, and I, I think that's what may have happened. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. secrets, uh, uh, you know, but some of the other commentary here. So secrets, uh, 
You know, I got to say, although I love Secrets to Death, I would say Secrets is a lot of unpublished, unsupported stuff in that it may work now. It may not work later. So I would take anything that you do with Secrets. I would be. Uh, well, I think, I think Sean realized the error of his ways and that you got to have backups and backups and backups, especially if you're mucking around with the system like this. So Secrets is cool, but be warned that what whatever they tell you how to do is certainly not supported by the, the the maker of the software. Right. It's just like, by the way, you know, somebody at some point found this little trick and, you know, here you can try it yourself, but <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, the, the other thing that occurs to me, Dave, is that if you are removing pieces of an app, the other thing that could happen is that, you know, as we talk about things like gatekeeper and code signing and stuff like that, you're almost oh. certainly going to screw that up, right? Actually, yeah. You Especially know what? in the age of, uh, go ahead. No, You're I was going to say to Sean, it, before you start, you said you left some apps around for testing reasons. Open up console and try to launch one of those apps that doesn't run and see what's reported there. I wonder if Gatekeeper is the problem because like you said, you've messed with it. So now the app doesn't, ver- doesn't uh, you know, if it does a CRC on itself or whatever, it doesn't you know it does not compute so i wonder if that's what's coming up and i bet console would show you that sorry i didn't mean to interrupt i got excited yeah. by your comment there no 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 that's good but, but uh, for for those that don't know gatekeeper is a, a new technology that apple introduced that basically verifies that an app has come from a trusted source and the one thing is if you use something like this this uh you know thing that will remove uh unnecessary resources that's all well and good but then you're you're almost certainly going to be changing the signature whatever technology is used to identify Mm -hmm. the app so even though you pulled out parts that aren't necessary the way the app looks to things like gatekeeper is going to change and it's going to say oh somebody's tampered with this which they have yeah (laughs) Yeah. but they haven't done it maliciously for hacking you've done it to pull out language resources that you don't need but that's right the, the the one unfortunate offshoot is you're going to upset things like gatekeepers. So so you, use of this the uh, use of programs like this that actually monkey with the app, I would say is yeah almost certainly going to going to cause problems like that. So yeah. yeah, I wonder if he looks in the console what you were suggesting. It'll come up with a security alert or something saying whoa this app has been tampered with. Yeah, I'm not launching it. Yeah, though the OS should do that, shouldn't it? I'm I'm thinking. Well, if yeah, I'm monkey, sure. It ha- is. Have you tried this? I mean, have you no. tried? Uh, modifying an app and then and then gatekeeper later on says oh, something's wrong here no i haven't yeah so i don't know and, <laughs> okay. and kiwi in the in the uh chat room is asking the same question does it use the whole package or is there just a piece that gatekeeper looks at and I, and I don't know the answer to that so i would think for it to be doing what it advertises it'd be the whole whole app right yeah it's probably right all right, so we've got. Uh, I want to. I want to give us a little bit. Of, we're over an hour already, so uh, I think. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about our our power uh, outage preparedness, but I did want to share one quick tip because this came up this week and I learned it. Uh, so it's definitely new. Uh, if you're on a web page in, I believe this is Mountain Lion, uh, and you click on the share. Uh, drop down in the uh, in the little header bar there on on the web page in Safari. You can say email this page, and I love doing that. But I hate that it's sending the whole page. I just like to send links to people, and uh, it was pointed out to me that if you do that, and then you're in mail and you have a little mail message up, 
right to the upper right of the content of the of the mail message. It says just like uh, it would when you're sending a picture. It's got a little thing there that's relevant to what you're doing. And in this case, it says send web content as and by default, web page is chosen. Well, you can choose PDF where it'll actually make a PDF of the web page and then send the PDF and the link to the page or just link only. And then you get the subject of the the email is the title of the web page and the uh, content of the email is the link to the web page, which is exactly what I wanted. So you got three options there in your send web content as and uh, and I think that's just awesome because that's that's how I think. So, John, on so the last time we talked uh, with with everyone here was Sunday, uh, the day before the the uh, Hurricane Sandy was supposed to to sweep through, uh, and and certainly the day before it did sweep through. So uh, we both knew that power outages and other various issues were likely, and uh, and so we we prepared. Uh, and I'm curious how you prepared for this. <laughs> well, you know, I've talked a lot about I didn't. <laughs> OK, OK. All right. Well, that you know, we're we're pretty we're old pros at this here in uh, in Durham, New Hampshire. So it's. Uh, oh, you are, because yeah. it seems at the drop of a hat, you lose power. Your anything you have connected to power. Yes. Uh, explodes. That's right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, I have a special situation in terms of the lightning here, but that but Durham in general. Yeah. We when we lose power, it stays out for a very long time. So. Uh, so. How did you prepare for the uh, for for the storm or or how did how did you prepare and then how did you deal with your level of preparedness once you were in the thick of it? Well, I don't think I prepared much at all. If anything, I. Uh, well, you know, I did okay. now that you mention it. Yeah. So w- one thing that I did is I knew I would need a or would probably need a computing device. So what I did is. Ahead of the storm, I charged up every single freaking battery that I had. So all my computer batteries. So right now I have uh, three batteries for okay. my MacBook Pro. So I have two of the batteries from newer and I still have an Apple battery, although it keeps uh, it alerts me when I plug it in saying that this battery is shot. It still has a couple of thousand milliamp hours in it. OK, so it's certainly good as a backup. And then for my iPhone, and I got to say throughout this whole thing, Dave, uh, this taught me the value of having a good smartphone. Uh, so, and what I did for the phone, now the phone was, uh, I had more options because in addition to, so, so I have um, a couple of, uh, they're called the Richard Solo 1800, which is a 1800 milliamp hour uh, external battery pack. And I bought a whole bunch. They had them on special at one point. So I bought a bunch of them. So I have multiple ones of those. In addition to having a battery that will plug into an iDevice, it also has a flashlight. And then the cool part is it has a freaking laser. That's so lasers are great. Yeah. So so in order, you know, in addition to charging your devices, you can amuse yourself for hours on end, especially with a laser or have fun with cats. Right. <laughs> um, so I had that. But I got to say, Dave, my main link, once the power went out, so my power went out about 7 p.m. Monday. And in an odd twist of fate, I was the one that did not have power for many hours because, uh, and, and you kind of commented this uh, on Twitter and other avenues, but uh, I was always kind of smug because I'm near various uh, uh, town services, and I thought that my proximity to them would would help assure my my having power coming back. Well, 
I, I think my premise was correct, but the thing is, my my understanding of uh, how the uh, electrical grid in my neighborhood works uh, was not. <laughs> yeah, because, I thought that when I moved to, because, to to New Hampshire, like, oh no, dude, we're near a school. We're, 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 we're don't worry about it. We're fine. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, same with me. Is that yes, the houses that were near the police department and the fire department and the other things that are somewhat near to me, they they had juice, but I didn't. And actually, the most frustrating point was. Uh, so a couple of days after the event, uh, things up the street for me, like on my same street, started getting power. I at one point was uh, for, for many days, I was six houses away from a house that had power. Oh, I was like, oh, come on, guys. Not good. You know, UI, oh. you know, I was thinking, of you know, going up to, you know, slipping the UI guy 50 bucks or something. You know, come on. Can you just <laughs> can you just run it? You know, five more, six more houses down my street. Yeah, but no, they they had a mess. Um, I actually know some people that know linesmen who were working in the area, and they're like, "Oh, dude, it was just uh, yeah." And and uh, I I wouldn't even pretend to know about electrical grids. All I know is that you you can't just turn the switch on because we had be submerged wires and and you know trees down. I mean, some of you may have seen some of my photos that I posted. It was a so I'd say strategy here. So what I did, okay, charge batteries. Um, Smartphone was pretty much my link. So I didn't have internet internet. Right. Uh, but I had phone internet. So I was able to check my email, whatever was plugged in the iDevice. So if anything, um, one thing that I learned from this, unfortunately, <laughs> it worked out for me, is if you have a way to, to give another device access to the things that are important to you, like email, which for me was because a lot of services were actually a bit between the uh, the town. Uh, they have this thing called... Um, is it Code Red? I think it's called Code Red. It's a okay. service that a lot of towns work with that send out important emails and voicemails to the numbers that you identify, and, and our town uh, works with them to do that. But um, you know, have a think about uh, think about it now. Having a having multiple ways to access communication channels that people may want to get in touch with you on. Yeah. You know, at first I, I, I thought, oh, well, you know, having being able to check my uh, email on my iPhone with IMAP is is a convenience. Well, in this case, it was almost a necessity to, to know what was going on because there was no juice, no Internet. Um, yeah. Yeah. What else? I have a uh, a cool stuff found that that may have helped you here, John. So I'm going to uh, oh, go. I'm, I'm going to play this from Kevin. Hi, Mac Geeks. Kevin here, a proud premium subscriber of the show. Um, I have something really cool for the, the cool stuff found category that I found. One of the coolest things I've, I've found in a while. Um, it's a battery pack to charge your iPhone or actually the iPad as well. Uh, you can find it on Monoprice. Uh, it's a competitor to the, to the Mophie pack, but it's a lot cheaper so I found this on mono price for twenty eight ninety five uh, plus shipping, which the shipping was pretty cheap. And uh, so this thing, uh, it's about the size of an iPhone four. Uh, it has five thousand milliamp, uh, I believe it's milliamp hours. And uh, I did a benchmark on it. I was able to charge my iPhone, my new iPhone five. Uh, right from red up to fully charged two and a half times. So it's pretty cool. Uh, it will, like I said, it will charge the iPad as well. Um, I'm not sure how many times I didn't do a benchmark on that. Uh, the other cool thing is that you can charge an iPad and an iPhone at the same time or anything USB. 
Uh, so it's pretty cool, you know, going around now, not having to dim my screen to save battery or, or uh, when I'm tethering, taking pictures, all that sort of thing. So in a couple shows ago, you guys were talking about saving battery on the iPhone, and I was kind of chuckling because I no longer have to worry about that. It's kind of cool. I'll send a link in my email um, to the to the page because the best part about this is it was twenty eight ninety five. So loving the show. Thanks for uh, for doing the show and proud proud supporter of the show. All right, you can cut me off. Thanks. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, and you know, I I looked on Monoprice and I found one. The one he sent in was a five thousand milliamp hour one with two USB ports. I found one that's a nine thousand milliamp hour one for about ten bucks more. I think it was thirty nine bucks. It only had one USB port, but obviously, you know, more juice uh, to uh, to store. So. I thought that, you know, I have a couple of smaller, I think they're about 2000, 2200 milliamp hour um, chargers that I got from Monoprice uh, when we went on a camping trip a couple of years ago. And and they're great. And I keep them, you know, I, I charged them up before the storm and it's it's handy. We don't we run the generator at the house, uh, but a it doesn't power much upstairs in the house because we don't you know, we don't really need it. Uh, and uh and we don't run it at night when we're asleep unless it's really cold and we need to keep the heat going. But this time it wasn't. So uh, I use one of those bricks so that I can charge my iPhone during a power outage at night and have it right next to my bed. And then I charge up the power brick during the day when the when the uh, when the generator's going. So it's uh, time shifted charging, I think is what we would call that. But uh, but yeah, we we ran the generator and then, you know, and then we didn't have to anymore. So. But uh. It was, but it was uh it was the roughest I had, Dave. Oh yeah, that's, uh, I well, think that's karma serious. karma karma in a uh odd twist of fate decided to give you power back almost uh, uh immediately. Yeah, I still don't understand and to why. let me and to let me <laughs> lounge about for uh <laughs> almost a week. Yeah. Uh, uh without juice. But uh, our area got oh my gosh. I mean, if you see oh, yeah, you any pictures hammered. of the storms, I mean, I'm in a beach area by the water. And, and actually, this was the uh, the worst storm that I've seen in, in the short time I've lived here, about 10 years. Uh, but but the scary part is that I was tracking. And this is where uh, you may want to think about this now. But what I found also critical was uh, being tied into. So some people dismiss the Twitters as, you know, it's just people wasting time. But uh, you know, tweeting things, which I certainly do. <laughs> but uh, I had, I was tied into the local power company. So they tweet uh, the local police, the local uh, state emergency management office, the governor. And between all of them, I was able to know what was happening, including <laughs> the fact that uh, water almost uh, got from Long Island Sound to my house. And I'm about a mile away from the beach. So this was the worst that I've ever seen. But I was seeing moment by moment. I think it was actually the police were saying, okay, well, the water's reached uh, your street and this street. And I'm like, uh-oh. They're like, okay, now it's reached this street. And I'm like, oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> the good news is that I also knew the tides. And what happened is basically the storm surge went along with the tides. So they were like, so after midnight on Monday is when the tide went out. And fortunately, that was the the farthest it got. <laughs> um. Gosh, I'm trying to think what else here. Oh, and I learned something very interesting, Dave. Did you know hot water heaters do not need electricity? Well, it depends uh, right. if it's a gas powered. You have natural gas lines, right? 
Correct. So, yes, that's right. You don't need electricity to make your your gas, your natural and gas so powered I hot water to work. So, uh, not that I was, you know, avoiding the hot water, but at one point, yeah. So after a couple of day, after day one, everything in the fridge was was yuck. So basically, I washed out things, and I was like, you know what? I wonder if I have any hot water. And I was amazed at the fact that I did. And then I'm like, wait, is that either the insulation is really good on this thing, or it's actually producing. And then I went downstairs and I'm like, Oh yeah. So it has a pilot. So as long as the pilot's on, yeah, then yeah, the gas comes in. And, and of course, as long as you have city water, which I do, right. then you get water pressure. So, and you know, being able to take a hot shower after <laughs> all the other inconveniences of oh, it's a big deal. power yeah. is a good thing to just get you going in the morning. And then also having a gas grill. Yes. So I was able to recover a lot of the frozen food because there are certain guidelines. I think typically, 24 to 48 hours if they're below 40 degrees and I had a thermometer. But made it through. Good. And and yeah, the uh, the iPhone was was my link to uh, <laughs> civilization. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's a good thing. All right, let's uh let's wrap this one up. Let's make sure let's uh well, let's first let's see uh let's tell everybody how to uh how to get in touch with us, right? Because we've had all these great questions in uh, in this week, and uh, and we would we're going to be back here next week. So, uh, and you thought out the band? You yes, yeah, it's not. It, well, yeah, actually, it probably is below freezing outside now. It was thirty four when I walked over. You here. know, that was the scary part too. Is that I think tonight they predicted uh, below freezing. That was the point where I'm like, oh man, if I don't have power when it's freezing, then yeah. yeah pipes and all that. Yeah, fun. that's bad. But Dave, yeah. But Dave, you know, people I th- w- would like to know how to get in touch with us. And I think one of the best ways, Dave, at least that I've found, well, not personally, because <laughs> I haven't written into us, though maybe I should, but you you, you probably want to try to send an email to feedback at MacGeekGap.com. Feedback at MacGeekGap.com is the email address to use. And I believe you said feedback. I did. Unless you happen to fall into the category of Kevin, uh, the same category as Kevin, which is that you are a premium supporter of the show. And then you do get access to our premium uh, at MacGeekab.com email address uh, that's reserved only for premium supporters. And it's for all of you. And uh, and it does get prioritized. So uh, so that is one of the perks of of helping us. do what we do here we really really appreciate it and uh and we're happy to to be able to do that uh in return for you uh you can check all that out at uh slash premium i think we'll get you to a page that explains how all of that works and uh and we would very much like to have you on board uh all right, you can also call us. Anyone can call us. 206-666-GEEK, which, John, is? 4335. That's right. Uh, let's see. You can Skype us to Mac Geekab. You can find us on Twitter. The show is Mac Geekab. He's John F. Braun. Uh, Pilot Pete is actually in the chat room, but he's not here with us. Mac Observer has all the, uh, the headlines from TMO, and I'm Dave Hamilton. So that's Twitter. Uh, how else are they going to find us, John? Oh, the Facebooks. Yes. Yeah. Facebook.com slash MacGeekGab. Yeah, Facebook's a great place to to sign up for the uh, for the live stream, too, because you uh, right. will get notification if the time changes or, or anything like that. So 
Uh, definitely check that out. And of course, the live stream is available at MacGeekUp.com slash stream. And uh, John, I think that's it. I think it's time to get out of here. We've been here long enough. We want to thank Michael Johnston, of course. We talked about that before for converting the show to AAC. Thank Cashfly, which we talked about before for all the bandwidth. Everybody in the podcast marketplace, PDF Pen, as we mentioned, Mac, iPad, and iPhone. Gazelle.com for buying all your new, uh, buying all your old iOS and Mac devices. And of course, BB Edit from Barebones. I'll be back at Media. Have an outstanding. I was going to say have an outstanding week, folks. But John, go ahead. Why don't you? Uh, why don't you lead us out? Well, unfortunately, I got to say that dur- during the uh, recent uh, events here, the I, I must say that uh, unfortunately, I think that I may have gotten caught. Don't do that. Made up.